In the beginning, God created. Those five words are, are the foundation and, and base upon which everything that we know exists. God created. It's, it's who he is. It's what he does. He creates. And so chances are, so do you. And what your creative passions are or may be are, are different from person to person. But probably everyone I know creates something. And so yours might be music or painting or drawing or landscaping or software or pottery or writing or, or theory or graphics or web design, something. Mine just happens to be sermons. But when I think about creating, I think about the creator. You know, certainly the, the creativity of some is, is more prominent or more renowned than others, but we are all creative all the same. So if you know me, you know that one of my first loves was architecture. That was, that was the career that I ran after for so many years, taking drafting classes in high school and, and working in the field professionally as a, as a draftsman in college. I even majored in it for my first two years of college before God called me to where I am right now. I, I loved architecture because for me, architecture was art. But more than just art, it was art with a purpose. It could be beautiful, but it also had a job to do. It had to be a functional home or a functional school or a hospital or an office building or dentist office or whatever it was. And so it was a dream of mine to make something that people love to experience and look at. And so art, much like the rest of creation, is always at its best when it lives up to its purpose. And when it doesn't, the artist mourns because it's not what he or she created it to be. One of the most famous artists in the world today is a person who goes by the name of Banksy. And Banksy's story is something that you'd expect to find only in a movie. Because whoever they are, they're an artist with famous art, and yet nobody is entirely sure of exactly who they are. No one knows who Banksy is. There are rumors that Banksy might be this person or that person, but nobody really knows for sure who they are. They're just Banksy. And for the last 30 years, people sometimes just wake up and, and they're on the wall on their street corner, whatever it might be, on some random street in England, is a new masterpiece from this mysterious artist. And I absolutely love that about them. I love mystery. But Banksy also made headlines uh, about two years ago. Maybe you heard the story, maybe you didn't. When he made a piece of artwork in a frame, and it was featuring a girl in, in black and white and a red heart-shaped balloon that was drifting away from her, ever so slightly out of her reach. Banksy is a, a known opponent for the way in which art has been collected and hoarded by the rich and the elite. And this person's developed a plan to fight back against the purchase and the ownership of their artwork. And so in 2018, their painting, uh, presumably against their wishes, goes up for auction. 
And as the auctioneer drops the gavel at 860,000 pounds or $1.37 million, the room hears a subtle beep and then a gasp from the crowd as this famous piece of art begins to move slowly and steadily out of the frame. Banksy's ultimate act of defiance was to build into his frame a paper shredder with a clear message that as soon as this art is purchased for top dollar, rather than enjoyed like it was created to be enjoyed, it would be destroyed. Now, the interesting piece about all this is that the shredder kind of malfunctioned about two thirds of the way through the shredding and likely made this painting worth even more than it was before. As, as pieces of the, the painting sort of dangle below the frame, like the fingers of those uh, uh, phone number tear-offs that you used to find on community message boards. But when you reflect on what happened that day, Banksy's message was clear. This wasn't the art's purpose. And so they destroyed it. This week we're excited to begin a new series here at the Lake Merced Church of Christ. It's called One Kingdom, Indivisible. And this series is, is perhaps a little unprecedented in the fact that it's a series that is, is done as a regional collaboration among dozens of churches. And it was initiated by a friend of mine who preaches at a church in Palo Alto. And so beginning like four to six months ago, a number of church leaders throughout the Bay Area began to meet. We got together on Zoom like we're all doing right now, and we collaborated on what this series was going to be all about. It's a series that acknowledges that as you look around at the world today, and even more specifically of the American church, sometimes we as Christians need to be reminded and rally toward a place of biblical unity amid this, this divisive political climate in our country and in the world today. And so that, that process toward unity is rooted deeply in who we and who, who the creation was purposed to be by the great artist, the, the creator of all that is. And our identity is found not in donkeys and elephants, not in reds, or blues, not in, in labels or platforms, but in our faith in Him. And so there's, there's really no excuse or exception to that identity. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1, God created. And it's amazing how Christians can become divided even before they reach page 2 of their Bibles. Like, did God create recently or did he create a long time ago? Did, did God create quickly or did God create slowly? And like, if that's where our minds go on page one in scripture, like we, we've kind of already started down the wrong path, right? And so all I want you to see right now is what God did. God created. Like he speaks and there's light. He speaks and there's waters. He speaks and there's, there's land and there's vegetation. He speaks and there's a sun and moon and stars. He speaks 
and there's animals and birds in the sky. And finally, he speaks. And there's something new. There's something different. There's something unlike all the animals that he just made. God speaks. And there's Adam. Sometimes we call him Adam, but it's Adam. It's it's a word that means mankind, humanity. He speaks and there's man. And this humanity that we learn about is unique because unlike the entirety of the rest of creation, mankind was made in God's very own image. Genesis 1 says, In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. But then Genesis continues regarding mankind. It says, beginning in verse 28, that God blessed them. And He said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that, that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, God says, I give every green plant for food. And as you'll notice as we, we read that passage, there's this one little word that I want to draw your attention to this morning. And that word is blessed. It's, it's the word baruch in Hebrew. You see, the, the interesting thing about that word is that it's, it's used like all the time in our world today, Right? We talk about blessing all the time. We, we say a blessing over our food before we eat it. We talk about being blessed all over Facebook and, and all over Instagram. Even if, if we're being honest, we don't always act like it. We're always quick to say bless you when someone sneezes and when a professional athlete scores right at the buzzer to win the game, what does he or she say when they're interviewed at the very end? They go, man, I am so blessed. So blessed. I, if you receive an email from me, I even usually sign my emails with blessings. And so what are we saying when we say that? What am I saying when I sign my email blessings? What does that word even mean? And more specifically, what does the Bible mean when it says bless? And I think it's important that we ask that question. Because bless is a word that is used a lot. Uh, it, it's used 427 times in the NIV. It's a word that's used 88 times just in the book of Genesis. In fact, one commentator said that blessing is the motif of the entire book. Like, it's what Genesis is all about. Genesis is about blessing. Bless is the very first thing that God does when He creates humanity. And interestingly, blessed is the very first word spoken by Jesus as he began his ministry and preached his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And yet, if, if someone walked up to you right now and asked you what bless meant, 
What would you tell them? What would you, what would you want to tell them? I think bless is one of those strange words that, that we have in our society, in our culture. I get asked these as a dad from time to time. Dad, what does that mean? I'm like, I kind of know, but I don't know how to, how to define that for you. It's one of those words that, that we're comfortable with, that, that most of us can, can clearly use every day, but we can't clearly define. But when we're done today, I hope you'll never forget what it means to bless again. Because the, the best definition I found, and the one that I think is, is most well-grounded in Scripture, comes courtesy of a guy named K.H. Richards. Uh, he wrote an article in Anchor Bible Dictionary. And this is what he said. He said, God blessed with a benefit on the basis of relationship. In other words, what he's saying is to bless is to give benefit on the basis of relationship. But in his definition, it's important to point this out. Uh, benefit is secondary. The, the primary facet of blessing is relationship. And specifically, it's a favorable relationship. So to bless is to give benefit on the basis of relationship. And so what does God say when you get to Genesis chapter 1 as he blesses humanity? What does he do, rather? God gives. God gives. He gives the promise of a future life. He says, be fruitful. He gives authority over his creation. His creation. He says, rule over the fish. Rule over the birds. Rule over the animals. He gives food. He says, I give every green plant for food. And after God blesses, after God gives benefit on the basis of, of this unique and this beautiful image-bearing relationship with humanity, we're told that God saw all that he made. And for the first time, we're told that God looked at it and said it was very good. Very good. And so the exceptional goodness of God's creation is realized when God and humanity are in relationship with one another. And so it's that foundation that sets the stage, not just for the rest of Genesis, although it does, but for the rest of time, that God and his image bearers are united, right? God with us. But there's something about that, that language that I think is important. Because it's not God with me and then like God with you, as if we can be apart and still with God. It's God with us. And that implies a certain togetherness, uh, not just with God, but among his image bearers, among humanity, among you and me, among us. And so while, while one facet of the relational aspect of blessing is vertical, right? God's relationship with humanity. That's not the full picture because there's another facet entirely that, that this series demands that we consider. And that is the, the horizontal relationship, the relationship between people, the relationship between one another. So I invite you to look at Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis 12, we're, we're introduced to a man seemingly plucked from absolute obscurity among all the people on the face of the earth. He's a man of the time by the name of Abram. Why Abram? We don't yet know. We have no idea, but Abram. For some reason, God shows up in Abram's life and, and he puts Abram on a journey, a, a journey to, to leave his home, to leave his people, to leave his land and to move to a new place. And immediately God makes a promise to Abram. It's a, it's a covenant. And this is what God says 
to Abram. I invite you to read along with me in verse 2. He says, Abram, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, which is kind of a backhanded reference to the pursuits of the people at Babel in the previous chapter. He says, and you, Abram, will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. But it's, it's this next line that I, wanna, I want you to pay special attention to. He says, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Church, those are not just some empty words from God to one man. Those words are a purpose statement for all of humanity. That through Abram, through Abraham's heritage of faith, God says he's going to bless all peoples on earth. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, but what about Democrats? Or like, yeah, what about, what about Republicans? Or yeah, but what, what about Muslims? Or what about like, people on welfare? Not like, no, all means all. And so what, what God reveals to Abram that day, like all those years ago, is that God will use humanity to bring benefit on the basis of relationship to the rest of humanity. That all people will be blessed through God's people. All people will receive benefit on the basis of relationship with God's people. And so that's why when, when Jesus teaches and, and someone asks him what the, what the greatest commandments are, what does Jesus say? I bet, I bet most of you know this. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He says, this is the first, this is the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. He says, all the law, all the prophets hang on these two commandments. And yet, in, in Luke chapter 10, we're told that an expert in the law approaches Jesus and he asks him about all this and he looks at him and he says, yeah, but who is my neighbor? It's not that he doesn't understand. You see, from the beginning of time in our flesh, we have often looked for ways to withhold blessing, to withhold the benefit that comes from relationship from other people. It is part of our sinful nature to see the blessings and to take them for ourselves. We see, we desire, and then we take for our own benefit. Like that is the very nature of sin. And yet God's purpose for Abram is the exact opposite. It's to offer benefit on the basis of relationship. And so church, for the next six weeks or so, we're going to begin to look at each major chapter in the story of God's people in the Bible, each, each section, each movement. And we're going to look at God's purpose. And we're going to look at the, at the way that sin and the enemy seeks to disrupt and to destroy God's purpose. And what I think you'll begin to see are that there are common fingerprints. There's a common DNA that the enemy always leaves behind because the most destructive thing that Satan can do is to try to interrupt the blessing that God has purposed for all of humanity. And I, when I look at the text, I see that Satan does this in usually in one of two ways. Number one, 
either he will seek to disrupt the, the benefit or the, the material gain and therefore destroy the relationship between God and humanity. I think this is what we see when we look at like the book of Job, for instance. He's destroying a man's wealth and he's destroying his life to get him to curse God and die. Like that is the enemy's goal in, in Job's entire story. Or number two, Satan's going to seek to disrupt the relationship between brothers and sisters and therefore destroy the benefit. Because he knows if he can tear me away from you or tear you away from me, then God's purpose for humanity to, to be blessed through humanity is, is kind of impossible. And so Satan's goal is to burn the bridges between us at all costs. And it's usually done by tempting one person to see, to desire, and to take for myself what should have blessed both of us. And when he succeeds at doing that, Satan moves one step closer in into to destroying or trying to destroy the blessing that God purposed in Abraham and in all of us to give. And so the, the, the beauty in this life is that Satan is not all-powerful. And he's not always successful. Because sometimes God's people do exactly what God intended for them to do. Sometimes God's people reject the temptation to see, reject the temptation to desire, reject the temptation to take for self. And instead, they freely give a blessing that benefits others and invests in relationship with them. You know, several years ago, I was at my previous church. We came into San Francisco, of all places, to do a mission week. We were in the Tenderloin. We are working with City Impact. And, and we were partnering with the Woodward Park Church of Christ in Fresno. Uh, it, was, it was both churches, college groups coming together on mission to serve people in, in one of San Francisco's hardest and toughest neighborhoods. And I watched this week as this hardened guy from Fresno, uh, whose name was Tutu, came along. And like at the beginning of the week, like even though Tutu was there, I wasn't sure he even knew who Jesus was. It just, it just kind of seemed like he came for the trip. Uh, he didn't really want to talk to anybody. He wasn't social. I don't think he felt like he fit in. I even watched in one of the first nights as we were debriefing and praying and worshiping and all that stuff, that he just like got up and he walked out right in the middle of it all. He was upset about something. I, I don't even know what it was. But it was clear as you, as you saw him a little bit, like he came from a rough background. But none of us really understood what was happening in his head or in his heart that day. But I'll tell you, as the days and the hours carried on and on and on, we, we literally watched this remarkable transformation happen, like right before our eyes, in a matter of three or four days. Because by the end of that week, we watched as, as Tutu took the initiative to, to meet this homeless man who's sitting on a sidewalk, and he built a relationship of affection and trust to the point where this guy opened up to him and told him how he had this, this daughter, this young daughter who had no relationship with him because he was struggling with substance abuse and struggling with addiction. And Tutu listened to that man's story and he asked him, like, hey, are you ready to, to do what it takes to build that relationship with your daughter? And when that man agreed, I'll tell you, Tutu left the group without permission from anybody. He had no one's blessing to do this. 
He left with that man and he walked him through the streets of San Francisco, all the way across downtown to a place where he could get sober and get help. And just so that man had some decency to walk into a new building and start a new journey in his life, Tutu literally gave the, the shirt off of his own back to that man so he could walk in there that way. Three days later, Tutu was baptized into a new life with Jesus. Guys, we watched as the Holy Spirit broke him in a week and immediately demonstrated what it means when all people on earth will be blessed through faithful people. Church, sometimes we get it right. Sometimes the church gets it right. And so that week, that day, Tutu ministered to us. Tutu modeled for us what it means to be Christ to someone else. And so church, when we go to the Tenderloin and we invest in learning names and starting friendships and serving them, we get it right. And when we bend over backwards to set up food drives, as our brother Paul Chacon has been doing, because we see people who are hungry and starving in the midst of a pandemic, and we know that hungry people need to eat, we get it right. And when we purchase dozens of Bibles to give to San Francisco State students to help campus ministries reach people for Christ, we're getting it right. And when we make ourselves servants to make sure that a murdered brother in Christ can have the best possible funeral here in our building, we get it right. Whenever there is benefit because of the relationship between God and humanity, we are getting it right. We are living with purpose, or, or to borrow from Rick Warren's language, we are living a purpose-driven life. Guys, when others are blessed through you, through us, we get it right. And so church, if, if you remember nothing else about this message, as we start off this series, I want you to remember these words. God created me to bless others. And just so this has a chance to sink in, wherever you are right now, I want to invite you to close your eyes. And I want you to meditate on these words slowly. God created me to bless others. 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 I want you to repeat those words over and over and over in your head. Get those in. God created me to bless others. God created me to bless others. If there's nothing else you get from this message today, remember those words because that is my purpose 
And that is your purpose. Guys, that, that is the church's purpose. And when we encounter a divided kingdom, when, when God's people are divided against one another, it is our mission to live out those six words without excuse, without saying, yeah, but who is my neighbor? Guys, if it offends us to say, like, God created me to bless Muslims, or God created me to bless Democrats, or Republicans, or Trump, or Obama, or illegal immigrants, like, we're missing it. We are called to love. Love who? Even our enemies. God created me to bless others. And when we do that, unlike Banksy's artwork, which, which sold and, and violated the purpose for which it was created, we are living in exactly the way that God intended us to live. God created me. He created you to bless others. And so church, I want to invite you. I want to invite you to know that God. I want to invite you to live with, with that kind of purpose in your life, to be and to do what God expected you to be and to do, to live with a singular purpose of being a blessing to whomever you encounter, wherever you encounter them. And so if you are ready to live your life in a way that, that never makes you question, like, what on earth am I here for? Or what is this life all about? Then you can do that today simply by emailing us. You can email us at questions at lakemercedchurch.com. God wants to be with you. Will you surrender your life to be with him? I pray that you will. And may God bless you. We'll see you next week.